Let's take a little time to reveal The prehistoric stories that the earth once concealed Mix them all together on this ancient land It's time to spread some paleo jam Hello and welcome to the final episode of Paleo Jam for Season 1. This is episode 15. Thank you so much to everyone who has joined us on this journey and particularly to all of the guests who have joined us and shared their remarkable stories. So for this episode, I'm joined by the one and only world-renowned, it would seem, uh, singing paleontologist Professor Flint. G'day, Prof. Hello, Michael. Great to be here and loving this podcast and and the the, the guests that you have so far have been wonderful and an honour to be part of that group. So, um, Prof, we always ask our guests to bring in an object uh, to help tell the story of the theme of the episode and since today's episode is about you um what did you bring so um thanks michael so what i brought is um and i thought about this long and hard there's a whole bunch of fossils i've got you know the first fossil i found which was a seashell uh, interestingly by the seashore and we'll come to that in a minute but the, the 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 object that i brought is not actually a fossil it's um, it's a replica of a fossil, a replica of an ammonite. And it was sent to me by the team from Marianning Rocks because we we donated some money. We 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 the, the first Marianning song that I did, um we, we donated some money to help build the statue. And lo- lots and lots of people donated money, but what I love about this object, this replica ammonite, is the story story of what it means every time I look at it, every time I look at it, every time anybody who's got one of these looks at it, they know that they made a contribution to the telling of this most remarkable story. That's a really cool um, object, Prof. Um, And I always, uh, as the host, it's always part of my job too, to bring an object. Um, I've brought with me um, I bought some coins, um, some coins, some authentic coins from the, 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 the Australian Royal Mint that have some Australian dinosaurs on them, including Diamantinosaurus and Australovenator. What's that got cool. to do with Professor Flint? Well, what it's got to do with you, Prof, of course, from, from what I see, is that you've been very big over the years of telling the Australian prehistoric story. Yes, Obviously, yes. you come from Scotland. But um, you're very big on telling that Australian story and, um, and, and seeing things like this on Toy de Protodons and stuff, for me, really reminds me of, of the importance of those connections. Um, what, what do you think when you see things like that? Oh, it's great. Like, I think it's, it's, it's a thing I think that we should be doing more of in terms of embracing our stories embracing what we know to be the things that lived where we now live. Now, for me, particularly because while I'm from Scotland, I live here in Australia and have since I've been to Wee One. Um, for me, wherever you are in the world, the first and foremost important prehistorics you should be learning are the ones in the place in which you live. 
So, you know, if you're in that part of North America where T-Rex come from, that's brilliant. T-Rex is part of your story. I mean, in a sense, these, these big iconic dinosaurs are part of everyone's story. But particularly, if you're from that part of North America, T-Rex walked where you walk. For us in Australia, you know, Australovenator, Diamantinosaurus, those things that we see in those coins. For us in South Australia, you know, the, the plushy Diprotodon toy I bought from Narakot one day. Those things, these are the stories of our place. And we, we walk amongst the shadows of these things. And I think it's so important to know that and to feel it, because I think it gives you a remarkable, when you look out the side, when you're going for a walk in the park, you know, you are walking where all of these things, where things flew above or swam above your head. That, for me, is why I think those objects are really, really cool. Okay, Prof, so we, we did have a couple of folk um, send in some questions. David asks, what did you love first, music or paleontology? Oh, right, well, um, cool question. But I think in a sense, the answer's pretty easy, pretty straightforward. And it had to be music. Um, I mean, my mother was playing piano when I was a baby. Um, one of the enduring memories of me as a child is of her playing Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. And it's one of the things that we played at her funeral a few years ago. So m music is... Um, central to the human condition. Um, music is is that art form that we carry with us wherever we go. We we hear a song and it gets stuck in our head. We go and see a show and we hear music. And when we've left the show and the show has uh, had music in it, once we've left the show, we still carry the show and the images of the show because we carry the music. Um, and we know that music's a fascinating thing in terms of what it does with our brains, and it engages all parts of the brain. And we know that storytelling does that too, because we are the storytelling animal, of course, or at least one of them. Um, and, and so um, I think it, it has to be music, um, because I didn't know, like, in the womb... I would have heard music, and we need, we know this now, we know that, that the young babies hear music and rhythm when they're there, so, so music, um, I think I was born to do music, and I love music in all its iterations and forms, I'm constantly changing the radio station, and constantly rummaging through Spotify and other places to find all of these different kinds of musical things, but of course then, then, then paleontology comes along. Paleontology comes along because it's like, oh, as a five or six-year-old, you, uh, you know, I found a little thing on the beach and it was a rock, but it was it was a, a seashell. And, and, and then I started to learn about, read books about dinosaurs and see all the movies and things and Jurassic Park and stuff. And, and what I love about dinosaurs... Firstly, they're a gateway to, to other prehistoric animals. They're the, 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 the glamour boys and girls that the people go, oh, dinosaurs, and they go, oh, you know, now that you've learned about dinosaurs, here, here's a, some Ediacara biota, here's some megafauna, and here's some chemistry and biology and geology. So there's that. 
Um, but they're, they're in a sense monsters, but they're monsters that are real. And there's a really fascinating research on how dinosaur kids um, are smart kids. And it's because, I think, they, they engage with the stuff. We've all met, we in paleontology, we've all met the kids that come up to us that know so many things and often know more things about a particular dinosaur or prehistoric animal that we ourselves might know. So yes, definitely love of music first um, and then paleontology. Okay, Pop, so what though, um, what, what was it that, that got you to, to draw that link between music and paleontology. And I think you kind of sort of hinted at it there. That's right. So art and science for me, art and science um, are two sides of the same thing. There's a lot of people going around now going, oh, we've discovered this great thing. Art and science go together. Who knew? Well, we've known for a long time. Like I've been doing this stuff for a long time. I'm not the first person to connect art and science, but it's a thing that I became aware of with the whole music and paleontology thing. So music brings order to chaos. It brings the order of random notes and sounds. Uh, the lyrics of songs a micro story. Songs themselves are micro stories. And paleontology itself is all about stories. It's not just about what an animal looked like in its biology, though that's critical to the next steps. Paleontology is about what the animal did, how it lived, the relationships it had to its environment, to other animals of its own species, to other species. Um, and it, the, the, the recent Mary Anning show at the Adelaide Fringe, there's this really cool part where it talks about a fossil is a story in stone, a memoir to the past of lives that once were. That stuff, that stuff. So paleontology is all about stories. And songs, for me, are a great way of telling those stories. As I said before, you know... Um, and it's certainly the way I love to tell them. But, but people carry songs with them. And we can do it directly through, you know, our, our, our smartphones and our little earphone things. But we don't need those to be humming in a tune in our head. We can have the tune humming in our head. Um, and and um, it brings back the visions and the memories of all of those things. Okay, Prof, so... Um, What's the best bit about working? Because you do, um, you, you mostly, and you do stuff with adults. But what's the best bit about working with a young audience? Oh, look, it's, it's those moments of connection. And it's, it's seeing, seeing kids connect to the stories of the past, to their past. I think that's part of it. But then there are these beautiful fan mail moments where you get sent something and a kid somewhere in Australia or another part of the world has listened to your thing or has, has seen me do some online stuff with Dinosaur University or, or the Prof Flint page. They've seen something and it's, it's helped them connect 
to science or to their own story. And they respond to that by making a thing. Now, I, I, one of my, I brought a tear to my eye. I got sent a photograph of this little scene. We, during the pandemic, we were doing lots of live stuff on um, Dinosaur University, Facebook live stuff. And this young kid, um, his mum sent me a photograph where he had made Lego Prof Flint. Like a Lego Flint and sitting at my desk at Dinosaur University as I would when I was doing these live broadcasts. And his mum said to me, he said, she said, she said, normally, like normally my son will make a Lego thing and then he'll pull it apart. But this one, he said, he put it on the mantelpiece and said, this one is for always. And I just, and she was laughing and stuff. And we laughed a bit, but then I thought, and I thought, this is such a cool moment. And it's such a privilege and a responsibility to be in that position where you can have that influence. But it just, it's those moments. It's those moments of connection. Yeah, I can, I can see that. That's, that's a lovely, lovely moment. Okay, so um, here's a question from, from Helen. Um, have you ever had something, have you ever had something go wrong during a show? And if so, what was it and what did you do? Oh, right. Well, great question, Helen. Um, so uh, I've always been of the view, and I know you are too, Michael, with, with the way that you do theatre and stuff. Always been of the view that if something goes wrong, the first thing, and you have to embed it in your head, the first thing, challenge accepted. So um, one day we were, we were doing a tour, and I was working with some young performers. Um, we were doing a tour of Adelaide and, and Surrounds, um, Dinosaurs Down Under was the show and and we were on the last show at Murray Bridge and in those days, the olden days, we used a DVD to play the music like the backing tracks and the audio visual so the show would start when the person in the AV box would press the DVD so presses the DVD button and um, nothing happens I'd walked out and said, ladies and gentlemen the show is about to begin, walked off, waiting for the stuff to happen. Nothing happens. So I've walked back out, out again. So I've said, and ladies and gentlemen, we might try that again. Ha ha ha. And I've gone out and bam, and nothing's happened. So I've gone side of stage. I'm thinking, okay, well, this is interesting. There's a theatre full of people here. Um, what do we do? Um, the phone rings and it's the, 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 the AV person because there's a phone side of stage. And we had this conversation he said, and he says, look, I, I don't know because we tested it that morning. Everything worked. I said, look, I'll just go on stage and I'll ad lib a bit while you try and fix it. Anyway, so I've gone on stage and I ad libbed for 15, 20 minutes. Like I had to uh, just telling stories and doing excerpts of things without the music. And um, I said, great. Um, uh, for me, it was, I loved it because there was a whole lot of cool new stuff I could tell the audience. One of the things I remember saying to the audience is like, you know, nobody else has got this in any of the shows. You've got this extra 20 minutes that nobody else has got. Um, and eventually, though, we, we worked out that the DVD wasn't going to work. I suddenly remembered that I had a copy of the audio, just the audio only, of the, the, the backing on my iPad. So I've grabbed that, stuck it into the thing, and we've done this show, me and the performers, with just some flashing lighting effects and without the usual backdrop. 
But we couldn't, there was no way, the thing to remember, there was no way that we were going to say, sorry people, you don't get a show. You've all come out today, you've all paid your money, you don't get a show. So your job as performers is to make sure the audience got a show. Okay, here's a question asked on another awesome podcast. They often ask, uh, and, and paleo nerds, um, where and when, if you had a TARDIS or some other time-traveling device, where and when would you most love to time travel to? Right, so, um, I think, um, and this might surprise or not surprise people, but 1846. I'd like to go back to 1846 to Lyme Regis. I'd love to go back until Mary Anning that it was all worth it in the end. That her story endures, that with each passing day she is becoming an inspiration to more and more people, particularly young girls around the world. I'd love to do that. If I had, if I had that power to travel through time, that would be the first thing I would do. And it, it reminds me there's an episode, speaking of Doctor Who, about Vincent van Gogh when they go back and there's this moment where he walks into the art gallery. He's brought back to modern day and he's walked back to the art gallery and he's told by the gallery curator who doesn't realise that he's talking to Vincent. He's told of what a significant artist Vincent turned out to be to the world that his legacy so matters. I just wish there was a way that Mary could have known that. And I'd love to play some tunes from the album that me and Gemma made, you know. <laughs> I'd hope she'd like it, I suppose. Um, and not think it's too weird that somebody... I mean, like, I don't quite know how it would work. Hello, Mary. I'm a man from the future, and we made an album of songs inspired by your story because your story is very important. At the, I, I, I'm not quite sure how I'd frame that conversation without her thinking I was completely bonkers. But if I could do that, if I could tell her and share some stuff with her. Okay, so um, speaking of that album, these curious things, what song from the album would you play her first? Oh, right. Um, oh, like maybe my dog, Trey, um, because her dog was so important to her. But maybe not. Maybe, maybe These Curious Things, the title track, because that's so visual in what it says. But probably I am a paleontologist, and which is just sung by Gemma on the album and not me. Because she was a paleontologist and it's that affirmation. I mean, there's this weird view that you cannot be an actual paleontologist until you've published a scientific peer-reviewed paper. And it's often been used to say, well, Mary Anning wasn't technically a paleontologist, was she? I mean, she collected fossils and things, but she wasn't actually a paleontologist. But, but what if the system that existed when you were alive meant that it was virtually impossible for you to do just that, simply because you're a woman, and a woman living in poverty? You cannot belong to the societies. You cannot go to university. And what if, despite that, you were the one digging up and prepping the fossils 
fossils, illustrating them, making notes for those who were to buy them. What if it was people like Cuvier and Buckland? It was them who were travelling to your hometown to walk with you and seek your counsel. Mary, remember this, Mary wasn't visiting Buckland or Cuvier. They were coming to see her. So there was this bunch of structures created by men that defined what a paleontologist was and excluded her. By that definition, excluded the possibility that women could be included in the first place. To, to then argue, well, she's not a paleontologist because the definition of a paleontologist was created by men that excluded her. I mean, that's nonsense. That's absolute abject nonsense. You know, that definition, those structures that often saw her defined as merely a collector and seller of fossils. Sure, I mean, she was a collector of fossils, but she was so much more. Okay, let's have a listen to a little bit of I Am A Paleontologist from the These Curious Things album by Professor Flint and Gemma Dandy. of course download or stream the album from all the usual places and we'll include a bunch of links in the show notes okay is there um is there anywhere or any when else you'd like to go and 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 i'm thinking in in prehistoric time so let's reframe the question if you can go back to prehistoric time um is there anywhere and any when you would like to go you know i think just about anywhere and any time would be brilliant. To begin with, Megafauna Australia. I want to see, I, I, I just want to see what Thylacoleo looks like when it's alive and how it moves and, and what it does. Um, but to see all the megafauna, um, um, to, to see them alongside the animals that are alive today that we see in Australia, the kangaroos and the wombats, but you add a layer of megafauna and other species. I mean, I would love to go back to Australia 200 years ago before cats and foxes and, and Europeans arrived and mangled ecosystems just to see what it was like back then and to imagine taking a different path way that allows us to have quokkas and quolls and all of these things in our gardens running around instead of cats and stuff but to go back and to see what the how the ecosystem functioned um 
To go back 95 million years ago would be cool too, to Lark Quarry near Winton. I mean, I've got a song about the dinosaur stampede, and I want to know, so is it a stampede? Um, because there's been some conjectures like, well, maybe the footprints are not of a, the bigger footprints are not of a carnivore, or maybe the footprints are made at different times. But but there's lots of footprints, and they all seem to be running. But but what what was really going on in that moment? To go back to the moment or moments, if that's what it is, those footprints were made. That would be um, extraordinary and fascinating and remarkable. Um, but to, to, uh, I started off by saying to, to go just about anywhere and any time would be brilliant. I mean, to see the colours and hear the sounds of a place 150 million years ago. And bear in mind, bear in mind, we have discovered so little of the species that lived during prehistoric times. Very few of the individual species that were alive have fossilized. We have a very tiny representation of what was around. And so to see an ecosystem a hundred million years ago in its full glory, as opposed to the patchwork that we have. And to see which bits we've got right. You know, that would be fascinating to compare what we think took place in terms of colours, in terms of inferred behaviours. Uh, we now think that ichthyosaurs swam in pods. Now imagine if you had a sailing ship and you're sailing on the ocean, would they do the same thing that dolphins do? But to see that, to see those sorts of possibilities, you know, to see them like dolphins, um, but to go back further and further, and, and I guess, yeah. So I think prehistoric Australia, age of dinosaurs Australia, 95 million years ago, the Eremanga Sea, to go back there, the middle of Australia, um, megafauna Australia, and I'm talking about Australia to start with because, you know, that's where I live now um, and have done, so it's part of who I am. But also, like, the Jurassic Coast to see Mary's stuff, like, and then duck back to see her on the way through, you know, to say, by the way, everything you did matters. And those things that you said, this was this was true and this was true. Um, so I think that stuff, for me, it almost doesn't matter what time period you go back to. It is going to be something remarkable and extraordinary. Okay, Prof. Um, we've only got a couple of minutes left. Um, if you could bring back one prehistoric animal, what would it be and why? Okay, so I'm asked this a bit and it usually comes down to thylacines or dodos. Um, and the reason for that is that they are within a reasonable proximity of time to when they went extinct. So I think, you know, I don't want to bring back T-Rexes because here in Australia, we know what happens when you introduce things like cane toads and stuff. So I wouldn't, that, that would be crazy. That would be madness to try and bring back something. And we're never going to bring back T-Rex because we don't have the DNA and we'll never have the DNA because it's all degraded and stuff. Um, 
but but I'd be fascinated to 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 bring back a thylacine and and put them back into Tasmania. Would you bring them back into the mainland? There's a really interesting question because it's been a few thousand years since they were here. So I think you know I think um but the danger of course the danger is that we spend it would have to be like a magic wand thing, wouldn't it? It would have to be like a magic wand because um you wouldn't want to be spending millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars to bring back thylacines when we've got species that are on the verge of extinction now and those millions and millions and millions of dollars ought to be spent on bringing back those well not bringing back but preventing those species from going extinct let's not make the same mistakes that we made with thylacines and dodos so um, yeah I think I think that. Okay, uh, one final question in the few uh, seconds that we've got. Um, what did you learn about yourself during the pandemic? Because it was a challenging time for for universities, for artists, for performers, for for all of the things that the the world in which you dwell. Uh, resilience, I think. I think we talk about that a lot. Resilience and adaptability. And just that whole challenge accepted, be brave thing that you just, you just, it's, but also that it's okay. It's okay when things are tough to sit on the sofa. It's okay to, when things are tough to sit on the sofa and cry and to, um, to, to, to not know what to do. That is totally okay when we have such challenging times. So I think, I think it's just to be connected, better connected to yourself. Well, okay, Prof, thank you so much for joining us. That is all we have got time for. We're going to take a break for a couple of months, but we're going to be recording some new episodes in the meantime and hope you get a chance to keep listening to lots of other fabulous podcasts in the meantime or go back to some of our previous episodes. Thank you very much and a goodbye. Cheerio! It's time to spread some paleo jazz.